Turn with me please in your Bibles to uh, the first letter of Peter and we'll be reading verses 1 and 2. So this morning we are beginning a new study. The talk this morning is very much uh, an introduction and an overview and a consideration of the purpose for this letter. So 1 Peter then. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Now it does seem to be a little odd standing here and not reading from the book of Romans, given that's what I've done uh, just about every month for the past two years. However, Rome does feature quite prominently in the background of our study to Peter's first epistle, since it's widely accepted that the letter was written and sent from Rome. The mention of greetings sent from Babylon in chapter 5 towards the end of the letter is thought to be a reference to this because it was not uncommon for Christians in the first century to refer to Rome symbolically as Babylon. The Apostle John does so in the book of Revelation. And in this letter, Peter makes several references to Old Testament prophets. And just as Babylon was the great city of world empire for many of those Old Testament prophets, So Rome was similarly viewed in the days of the New Testament apostles. Now, it may be something of the school teacher that remains in me that causes me to feel that I need to link what we're studying today to where we left off last time when we concluded our study of Romans. You see, the end, towards the end of Romans, which Paul wrote in AD 57, he informed the church of his intention to visit them soon. But first he had to make a trip to Jerusalem with a gift collected by the Macedonian churches on behalf of their Jewish brethren in Christ to relieve their hardship and suffering. The later chapters in the book of Acts give us the details of that visit and how Paul came to finally arrive in Rome. And as I'm sure you know, Paul was attacked, persecuted, arrested, sent for trial and shipwrecked before arriving in Rome as a prisoner. However, as uh, Acts 28 makes clear, that having arrived in Rome, he enjoyed a relatively comfortable existence in which he was able to freely share the gospel even while under house arrest. And the conditions described in Acts 28, however, differ markedly from the situation of Paul's imprisonment as described in his second letter to Timothy. His situation was markedly worse. And from the testimony of early Christian writings, it appears that Paul was released from his first imprisonment, the one described in Acts 28, and that he left Rome to continue his work in AD 62. We don't know exactly what he did or where he went in the interim, but we do know, and can be relatively sure of, that his imprisonment, as described in 2 Timothy, occurred two to three years later as a separate event. Now, you may be wondering why I mention this. What relevance is this to our study of 1 Peter? Well, it's this information that helps us date 1 Peter 
and therefore to determine the context in which it was written. And in the final few verses of this letter, Peter mentions Silvanus and Mark, but makes no mention of Paul. It seems highly likely, therefore, that Paul was not in Rome at the time. And this strongly suggests that the letter was written sometime between AD 62 and AD 65. Now, AD 63 seems to be the most likely time during that range, for reasons that I'll go on to explain. Now, if you're following in the NIV at this point, you're looking for the, you may be looking in chapter 5 for somebody called Silvanus, and you're actually reading Silas, because Silas and Silvanus were the same person. At this point, I want to draw some contrast between Paul's letter to the Romans and Peter's epistle, since in doing so, it gives us some sense of how the situation in Rome had changed in the period between AD 57 and AD 63. You'll no doubt recall that Romans was written to a specific church. 1 Peter, by contrast, was written to a number of churches spread out in different regions over a very large area that today constitutes northern Turkey. The primary focus of Romans was concerned with resolving an internal matter, a conflict that had arisen among the members of the body. There is some small suggestion that there may have been a limited external pressure, but since this was not the primary focus of the letter, we can conclude that persecution from outside was not a major issue for Christians in Rome at the time Paul wrote. By contrast, the focus of attention in 1 Peter is very much on external pressure. Persecution, or at least the threat of it, was a far greater concern. And the overall message that Peter sent to prepare his readers for it so that they could endure it and stand firm in the face of it. He did not tell them how to escape it. See, by comparing the two letters in this way, it teaches us a profound lesson not to put our trust and security in the things of this world. World events are subject to change, and those changes can happen in a remarkably short space of time. The stability and relative freedom from persecution enjoyed by Christians in Rome during the late 50s AD had given way to increasing tension and insecurity by the early 60s. Now I'm going to come forward. The light seems to be following me. Now, from the internal evidence of the letter, it appears that the persecution experienced at the time of writing had not yet reached the extreme levels that history records in the middle of that decade. It appears to have been localised and sporadic, more about intimidation and verbal in nature rather than violent and physical. In chapter 2, Peter instructed his readers to fully submit to the civic authorities and to honour all people. Now, this suggests that persecution had not yet become full-scale throughout the empire, and there is no hint of the brutality that was about to be unleashed upon them in the near future. Now, if I was to mention to you the year 1666, many of you know your history, will correctly associate this with the Great Fire of London. Well, the 19th of July in AD 64 is an equally significant date. Since beginning on that day and raging for three days was the great fire of Rome. And during that blaze, 
a great deal of damage was done and a large number of buildings were destroyed. And this proved all rather too convenient for the ambitions of the Emperor Nero. Many believed that he was responsible for the fire. And with so many buildings destroyed, it would provide him with the ideal opportunity to rebuild the city in honour of himself. Aware of this growing suspicion, Nero needed someone to blame. He needed a scapegoat. So he exploited the growing tensions between the general populace and the Christian community and made Christians the target for blame. Now it appears that the general populace were happy to go along with this since the presence of God's people living righteously among them would no doubt have disturbed their consciences and people often resort to extreme uh, means as a consequence. So Nero unleashed the most brutal and inhumane torture of Christians, even turning it into a form of public entertainment. Now having considered something of the external circumstances that existed at the time of writing, there are two more pieces of background study that we need to do before looking at the content of the letter more fully. Firstly, we need to address the question of authorship. And then we must spend a little time considering the recipients of this letter. Now, the very first words of this letter tell us that its author was the Apostle Peter. And in chapter 5, Peter refers to himself as an eyewitness to the sufferings of Christ. This was the Apostle Peter who spent over three years in the company of Christ, who along with the Apostle John beheld his glory. He also met with Jesus on more than one occasion after his resurrection and was among those who watched as Jesus ascended into heaven. We should, be, should, should therefore be careful not to be taken in by those who would dismiss the authorship of Peter as a harmless literary device. After all, the early church rejected several other writings that were attested to Peter. It should also be carefully noted that there was no dispute in the early church as to its authenticity as the work of Peter. The early church fathers, such as Clement of Rome, who referenced the letter, and Irenaeus, who quoted from it, clearly ascribed this letter to the Apostle Peter. It is scholars from modern times who have tried to cast doubt on the fact that Peter wrote this letter. And their objection tends to be based around five arguments. Firstly, they say that Peter would probably not have spoken Greek and therefore it would not have been possible for a Galilean fisherman to have written a letter in such a polished style. They go on to add that Peter would, uh, would have quoted from the Hebrew Old Testament rather than the Septuagint, that is the Greek Old Testament, that was used in this letter. They say further that Peter would have made more references to the historical Jesus and that the theology or the theological content of the letter is too similar to that of Paul. And the last and weakest objection, and since it's not supported by any clear evidence, uh, is that the background of the letter suggests that it was written during the reigns of the emperors Domitian and Trajan. So how should we respond? Well, dealing with the first point, one needs to ask, why wouldn't Peter have spoken Greek? The whole area had been under Greek influence for over three centuries, and Greek was commonly spoken throughout the region. 
Galilee was not some remote backwater. Positioned close to two main Roman roadways, many international merchants, diplomats, officials and other travellers would have sought accommodation while passing through it. It was not without good reason that it was commonly known as Galilee of the Nations. So why wouldn't a Galilean fisherman have been bilingual? After all, they needed to do business too. Let's take an example closer to home. There are many Welsh people who are equally passionate about their national language as the most patriotic Jew of the first century. Yet the majority speak English fluently and are highly skilled in written English too. So why wouldn't Peter have spoken and and, and written Greek? So the burden of proof lies with the objectors, uh, objectors, since it's highly likely that Peter would have spoken Greek very well. Now let's be generous to our uh, our objectors and at least consider the possibility that Peter's written Greek may not have been up to the task. Now even this is not a problem. You see, in chapter 5, verse 12, Peter wrote, By Silvanus, our brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly. You see, if Peter's written Greek wasn't up to the task, Silvanus's would have been. And from what we read in chapter 5, it's entirely possible and indeed highly likely that Silvanus either drafted the letter under Peter's direction or served as an editor or co-editor of the work. The Silvanus, or the Silvanus that Peter refers to is the same man who was very prominent in the Jerusalem council that we read about in Acts 15. And it's also the same Silvanus who accompanied Paul on his missions throughout Greece and southern Turkey. He was very qualified for the role. And from what we read in Acts 15, it's evident that Silvanus was inspired by God. He is described as a prophet, and that he was used by God to strengthen the brethren by many words. In response to the second objection, that Peter would not have quoted from the Greek Septuagint, well, let's think that through. Now, given that Peter was writing to churches in northern Turkey and that the only common language they shared would have been Greek, well, which translation of the Old Testament would you have chosen? You see, it's very presumptuous to state what Peter would have or would not have done. The third objection, that Peter would have made more references to the historical Jesus, also does not stand up to closer consideration. Firstly, there are at least three occasions when Peter alludes to some of the sayings of Jesus, and I've listed these references in the notes for you to study later yourself. However, this objection fails to recognise the fact that Peter had already written extensively about the historical Jesus in a work known as the Gospel of Mark. And it's widely recognised that Mark wrote his Gospel by working closely with Peter, and that, it was, and that it's a written account of Peter's recollections and experiences of the three and a half years that he spent with Jesus. The fourth major objection, the charge that the theology is too similar to that of Paul, does not stack up either. In the early chapters of Acts, we read about how diligently the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. And in his letter to the Galatians, Paul records how several years after his conversion, he went up to Jerusalem to confirm that the gospel he preached was the same as that preached by the other apostles. And Paul records that James, Cephas, that's Peter, 
and John extended the right hand of fellowship to him and Barnabas to confirm that this was the case. So it's hardly surprising that the theology of 1 Peter would be similar to that of Paul. And given that there's no clear evidence to support the last objection, it requires no further comment. So despite recent objections, we can be sure that Peter was the author of this work, as the letter clearly states. Now the one final bit of preparation we must do before we begin our study of the contents of the letter we need to say a few words about the recipients of, the, of, this, epi- uh, of, of this epistle. In verse 1, Peter identifies the location of these recipients. He locates it as Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Now, if you've got a map section in your Bible, you might just want to look at that. You see, when you consult... Uh, the map section of your Bible, if you take notice of the scale, you'll see that it made up a very large area in what we know today as northern Turkey. And to give you some idea of the size of this area, we're talking about a land area greater than the whole of Britain and Ireland. Peter describes these people as pilgrims of the dispersion, the elect, And in chapter 2, he goes on to identify them as a chosen generation, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and God's own special people. Now, these are all terms that have been applied applied to Israel, which has led some to conclude that Peter was therefore writing to communities of exclusively Jewish Christians. Now, whereas this may well have been true when these churches were first formed, the internal evidence of the letter clearly suggests otherwise at the time of writing. You see, the history of these churches is likely to have been pretty much the same as the history of the church in Rome. And just as there were Jews from Rome present when the Holy Spirit was first given at Pentecost, there were also Jews present from these regions too. In Acts 2, chapter 5, we read, "...and there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews." Devout men from every nation under heaven. Well, that would cover it, wouldn't it? But in verse 9, the regions of Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia are specifically mentioned. Now, these devout Jews heard the gospel preached by Peter that day. They heard him proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus and that he had been raised up as Lord and Christ. They were present when Peter told them that they needed to repent and be baptised for the forgiveness of sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, it's reasonable to conclude that devout Jews from these regions were among the first converts to Christianity and that they returned home and established the churches there. So at first, these churches would have been exclusively made up of Jewish believers. However, given that they lived among Gentiles and that Gentiles at that time were far more receptive to the gospel than Jews, it is likely that those churches would have developed and grown like the church in Rome by progressively becoming more Gentile in character. And by the time Peter wrote his epistle, more than 30 years later, the churches in these regions would have been made up of predominantly Gentile Christians. Now, There is clear evidence for this in the content of the letter. 
In chapter 1, verse 18, Peter stated that they had been redeemed from the aimless conduct received by the tradition of their fathers. And in chapter 4, Peter revealed the exact nature of that aimless conduct. He writes, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties and abominable idolatries. Now, such conduct can hardly be described as the traditions of Jewish communities. Throughout history, the main accusation against the traditions of the Jews has been an overzealous religious piety, the exact opposite of the traditional conduct that Peter was describing. Now, having established that Peter was writing to churches made up of predominantly Gentile Christians, some take this argument too far and state that since Peter has identified them as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, etc., all of those titles that were once given to Israel, then this confirms that the Gentile church has replaced Israel as the people of God. However, people who do so fail to recognise that the application of these titles to Gentiles does not necessarily mean replacement of, but could equally well mean inclusion into. And even a cursory reading of Romans chapters 9 through 11 confirms that this is the case. The illustration of the olive tree that Paul gave makes it clear that Gentiles have been grafted in. The tree has not been replaced and that the people of Israel are very much part of God's future plans and purposes. Now I've considered this issue in much greater depth in four talks given earlier in the year, all of which are available online So to those who would like to consider this issue in more detail, they are readily available for you to do so. So having considered the background to the letter, it is clear that Peter wrote for the purpose of preparing them to endure and to stand firm against persecution. Now you might be asking, how does one do that? How did Peter prepare them to face persecution? Well, Peter did so by affirming their identity in Christ in order to deepen their assurance of faith. In chapter 1, Peter deals with the individual aspect of salvation. Every believer has to come to Jesus themselves in repentance and faith. No one can do this for you. In the first half of the chapter, Peter describes the activity of God in this process. What he has done in the past, what he is doing in the present, and what he has promised to do in the future. In the second half of the chapter, he instructs his readers how to respond. In this letter, we once again see that dynamic that runs right the way through scripture, divine inspiration and human cooperation. Now, the first instruction that Peter gave to his readers was to gird up the loins of your minds. He tells them to take action and to prepare for battle. They need to settle the issue of their salvation in their minds and prepare themselves for the assault of the enemy who will take every opportunity to cause them to doubt it. They need to understand and be sure of who they are in Christ and understand the nature of the work of God on their behalf, past, present and future. Now, if we are to stand firm in the face of persecution and adversity, we need to understand the corporate aspect of our faith as well as the individual. 
To persevere in times of trial, we will need the love, support and encouragement of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it is this aspect that Peter deals with in chapter 2. He teaches that each believer is a living stone. They are a single part of a greater whole. They are to think of themselves as living stones being built into a spiritual house where spiritual sacrifices can be offered to God through Jesus Christ. And the foundation stone or chief cornerstone of this spiritual house is Jesus Christ himself. So to prepare them, Peter affirms and reassures them of their identity. And this is precisely what the Heavenly Father did during the earthly ministry of Jesus. Everything that Jesus did was out of a sure and certain knowledge of his identity as God's only begotten Son. You may recall at the very beginning of his public ministry, immediately following his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove and God the Father was heard from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Right at the start of his public ministry, the Father affirmed Jesus' identity. And everything that Jesus did was from a known position of acceptance. He did everything with the full assurance that he was indeed the Son of God. And the affirmation that the Father gave him at his baptism was the fulfilment of prophecy. In Isaiah 42, God said, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. This event confirmed to Jesus that he was the subject of that prophecy given through Isaiah. And here we learn a profound lesson. The servant was the son of God. Sonship does not, did not give him privileged exemption from service. The son was the servant. Now the significance of this event is made even more poignant when you consider what happened next. Immediately Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted. He was led to a place of weakness with no companions, no food and precious little comfort. And here the devil did his utmost to put doubt into his mind and attempted to cause him to disbelieve the words of his father. The repeated accusation was, if you are the son of God. Do you see why the first instruction that Peter gave to his readers was to gird up the loins of their minds? Set your mind on knowing what God has done, what he is doing and what he has promised to do. Be fully assured of your identity in Christ. Now this was not the only occasion that the Father affirmed Jesus' identity with those words. He said them again on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, hear him. And it was after receiving this affirmation that Jesus set his face to go to, go to Jerusalem to die for the sin of mankind. Jesus willingly submitted to the Father's will as a trusted response to known love. And it is this lesson that Peter wants his readers to understand and be certain of. For it is that which will enable them to stand in the face of persecution. Now at this point I just want to read those two verses again as we concentrate towards the end of this talk more fully on those two verses. Peter 
an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. You see, after introducing himself, Peter immediately affirmed their identity. They are pilgrims of the dispersion, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He is assuring them that they are God's people. He identified them as pilgrims. Now, pilgrims are temporary residents in a foreign land. And as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, they are to regard themselves as pilgrims in this world. He identified them as elect. They are God's chosen people. Now, chosen according to foreknowledge does not mean that the salvation destiny of individuals was predetermined before the beginning of the world. This doctrine is a direct contradiction of scripture, which clearly states that God desires that all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, this is a deep issue. Again, one that I've considered in much greater detail in my talks on Romans recently. So if anyone listening wants to consider this further, those talks again are available online should you wish to do so. You see, God's free gift of salvation has been made available to and freely offered to all people. For God so loved the world, that's everyone, that he gave his only begotten son, that that whoever, that means anyone, who believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And Peter is writing to people who have received God's free gift of salvation. They have repented of their sin and they believe in Jesus. And as such, Peter is writing to assure them that they are among those people through whom God has chosen to fulfil his plans and purposes as they walk in active cooperation with him by faith. They are among those people that he has predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He has chosen them to reflect his righteous character. That's the very purpose for which mankind was created. When God created mankind, male and female, he created them in his image. It means that men and women were created to reflect his righteous character. Now, if we were created to reflect his righteous character, it means that we are not the source of that righteousness. He is. And when we read through verses 1 and 2, whose activity is being described? You see, the triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, is the active agent in every aspect of our salvation. It is the Father's will to save made possible by the sacrifice of the Son and appropriated to the believer by the work of the Holy Spirit. And even the obedience referred to is as a, as a consequence of the work of God in our lives. And it's the failure to understand this that has led to so many problems. If we think that we have to produce it in and of ourselves, it will lead us to despair. 
And if we think we can produce it in ourselves, it leads to arrogant self-righteousness. This was the problem that many of the people of Israel had. The consequence of believing that they could produce it in themselves was Pharisaic Judaism. The obedience referred to here is produced as a consequence of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Now obedience is not the condition required to receive Jesus' love. Obedience is the consequence of having received it. Obedience is the trusting response to known love. We love him who first loved us. And obedience to his command is the evidence of having received it. Now, although God is the active agent in all aspects of our salvation, past, present and future, it does not mean that we are passive. However, we must be clear that our activity is as a, is as a trusting response to known love born out of a deep inner assurance of our identity in Christ. Now, much more needs to be said on verse 2, and God willing, I will address this next time when we study in more detail the first 12 verses of the letter. However, just as Peter began his letter with the greeting, grace to you and peace be multiplied, I want to close this morning's introduction with a few thoughts on this greeting. Grace signifies God's love in action in Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. Grace is a gift and God is the giver. Coupled with grace in this apostolic greeting is peace. Now the word peace does not mean absence from trouble in this world. Given that the purpose of the letter is to prepare people to face the fiery trial of persecution, it couldn't possibly mean that. The peace referred to here is far more precious for it's referring to the peace that exists between man and God as a consequence of Jesus' sacrifice. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And God wants his people to know these blessings. And he doesn't, he doesn't want us to just know a little bit about them, Be assured, he wants us to know them in abundance. And this is the thought on which I will close this morning. May God bless you all. Amen.